On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Boss of the People. In this episode, we have David Cole, who leads the legal work over at the ACLU. And then uh, we have the news as usual with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam. My advice this week is to have a routine, especially while we're all stuck at home, is to remember that we all need a little structure. So I try and have like a way that I work out in the morning or that I do a certain set of things every day to just like train my mind so I don't go stir crazy in the house. And sometimes the routine can help us keep it all together. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith Third. Hi, hi, hi. And this is DeRay at D-R-E-Y on Twitter. So some of us are coming up on week three and week four of social distancing, self-quarantining, and this brave new world. Have y'all been learning new things? Like, have you been finding yourself going deeper and deeper in internet rabbit holes? So when I can't sleep, I look at a whole host of websites. First is that if you are out of stock with anything, y'all, eBay probably has it. Uh, Now, eBay, you just have to be a good, you have to be a good shopper on eBay because the price is going to be a little weird. So you'll see a picture of four bottles of Lysol, but really it's just one that they're going to send to you. They just own four bottles. So you got to like be a really good consumer. But if you need something, eBay probably has it. Also, people were sleeping on Sears. I needed a picture, you know, like one of them old Kool-Aid pictures. I couldn't find a picture at Target. I got one from Ace Hardware. You know what people are sleeping on? Beauty supply stores. They have gloves. Some of them have masks. They have cleaners and disinfectants. I'm trying to tell you how beauty supplies. They have hair. (laughs) They have gel. (laughs) All kinds of butters, shea, cocoa, every oil you can think of. Don't sleep on a beauty supply store. I will say, one of my friends on Instagram, she was uh, she in the house with a scarf on with this wig. And her caption was, I'm getting my Zoom wig together. I need my, I'm on all these Zooms. I got to get my Zoom wig. I said, girl, you better go here with your Zoom wig. One thing I have discovered is uh, there's this very cool website, bookshop.org. So, you know, we're all in our houses. This might be not for me, not if you have kids. Some Because some people are like, oh, you have so much time. Like, you can start a hobby. Every YouTube video, uh, YouTube ab I see is for one of those master classes, like learn to sing, learn to paint, learn to draw. Like they clearly know that this is the time. And I'm like, you clearly don't intend this for parents of young children. Uh, so there is no no hobby development happening in my house. But I know folks are homeschooling. They're ordering a lot of books for their kids, ordering books for themselves. And if you are trying to limit the extent to which you order from Amazon, then especially for books, there's a great website called bookshop.org which will ship the book to you in the exact same way, but it ships it from your local independent bookstore. And so this is a great way, especially right now, when independent bookstores are trying to stay alive and all of them are transitioning to shipping to just like make ends meet or keep their staff to the extent they can. This is a great, great way to get your next book. Um, So I've ordered from Bookshop. It also has a little tally of like how much money they generate for independent bookstores. So 
I encourage folks to use it, give it a shot. I mean, if you just go into the search function, look for your book. Every book that I've looked for has has been there. Bookshop.org, not bookshop.com, bookshop.org. And you should order your next book from there and support independent bookstores. That's very cool. Well, I will say that I've learned two things in particular. I've actually been spending a lot of time in reflection and introspection, trying to decipher the lessons that I'm supposed to learn from this moment. And I think that there are a lot and some of them are still coming into clarity. But somebody asked me on Instagram kind of what I want to be true about my life when this is over and when we enter whatever the next normal is. And I said that I want to consume less, connect more, and to stop placing my value in my labor, which feels ironic because this podcast is part of all of our labor and it's part of the work that we do. Um, but I, I tweeted something today that apparently was a little too loud because it got in so many people's business, but it was true for me. I said the restlessness that some of us are feeling right now is actually a symptom of withdrawal from destination addiction. We get so used to hopping onto the next thing so we can avoid the things that we really need to sit with. So now may be the time to sit and face ourselves as a really brilliant woman uh, named Debbie that I follow would say to meet those parts of myself with an embrace and with love. I'm spending a lot of time actually not researching things, but reaching out to people to make sure that people are good, that they have what they need, making sure that friends and family of mine that are quarantined alone don't feel alone, and reconnecting and deepening some relationships that I think I had thought I was too busy for before, and just sitting with some lessons of life and a new marriage and womanhood and all of those kinds of things that I kept running away from because I kept claiming I was too busy. The other thing I have learned is how to blend my own hair with these fantastic heat-free hair clippings I have. <laughs> because, you know, why not learn how to become a kitchen beautician uh, in this time where we are all trying to look kind of halfway decent, at least on these Zoom calls we are on, because now there are a million of them and we can't go in to see somebody to bless our trushes. But anyway, here's the news. As we get further into this public health crisis, there is more and more data and more and more information coming out uh, that gives us insight into who is being impacted and, and how they're being impacted. And the New York Times, among other entities, has done some really good work sort of analyzing this data using a range of cell phone information and as well as some other metrics to try to figure out how are people moving, who's being tested, who's not being tested, et cetera. And something that they put out last week that I thought was really interesting, and they've been doing some really great data visualization work on their website, is that although people in all income groups are moving less than they did pre-coronavirus, uh, wealthier people are staying at home the most, especially during the work week. And not only that, but in nearly every state, they began doing so many days before people who were living in poverty, which basically gives them a head start on social distancing as the virus spread, according to the data that these folks have collected, which tracked about 15 million cell phone users nationwide uh, every day. So while everyone has limited their movement, the wealthiest people, and for the sake of, of this conversation, the wealthiest people they're using are those in the top 10% of income, have limited their movement significantly more than the people in the bottom 10% of income in those exact same cities and metro areas. By March 16th, President Trump had asked people to stay at home to slow the spread of the virus. Those in the wealthiest and poorest areas were both moving less than usual. 
But by that same date, those in the highest income locations had already cut their movement by nearly half, whereas poorer areas did not see a similar drop until three days later. And this, my sense is that we can attribute this to the fact that many workplaces before March 16th had asked their workers to start working from home to limit their movements, right? And so like the uh, the places I often go into co-work were saying like, we're closing up, don't come in, stay at home. And that's really fascinating. And what this data makes clear is that wealthier people not only have more job security and benefits, but they are also better able to avoid becoming sick given the nature of their income and their jobs and what is necessary for those jobs. Like, can they hop on a Zoom call or do they need to get on a subway and go to the grocery store or go to the clean the hospital or go to do all of these things that are now considered essential work, even though they are not often treated and paid like essential work should be. Something that is also interesting is that recent stats released from the public health officials in New York City suggest that coronavirus is hitting low-income neighborhoods the hardest. And as we know, and Brittany, I think, is going to talk about this a little bit more, those who live in low-income neighborhoods disproportionately are Black and Latinx people. Economists and public health researchers said that this data pointed to holes in the government response to the pandemic fallout for low-income workers, which is focused on those who've lost their jobs because of shutdown and not those with essential duties, like we said, the folks who are now on the front lines, even though they are being paid below $15 an hour and whatnot for the work they do. In the metro areas with the greatest disparities between richest and poorest, where there were orders to stay home, People in higher income neighborhoods have essentially like halted movement in totality, basically like folks only leaving for the grocery store, only leaving for CVS and barely even that because oftentimes people are having delivery services delivered to them. Uh, Whereas folks in lower income neighborhoods have also drastically reduced their movement. But the data shows that there was an uptick in movements after the third week in March, which coincided with the start of another work week because, again, these folks don't have the luxury of sitting on Zoom calls and conference calls and staying home because the very services that are keeping our society moving, the delivery workers from the restaurants, the hospital workers, the healthcare workers, people who are in local government, the people who are in the grocery stores, all of these folks are still moving. And these are all folks who are at the lower end of income levels. We know how it's impacting people of different uh, socioeconomic status is differently. Um, and, and I think it's worth exploring how it's affecting people of different races differently within that context. So to the point you've made, Clint, we are really wise to pay more attention to inequality at this moment, not less. Like I've become a broken record on this and I am perfectly happy, frankly, to stay that way. Why? Because we always have to remember A global crisis does not erase inequality. It expands it. People who have already been experiencing systemic oppression in this world are now experiencing the exacerbation of that very same oppression. I heard it said this way today, that everyone keeps saying we are dealing with the same thing, a global pandemic, and therefore we're all in the same boat. But what's true instead is this. We are all experiencing the same storm, but we're all in different boats. Some folks are in yachts and other folks are in little dinghies with holes on the bottom trying to survive. We may all be enduring the same storm, but we are not in the same boat. In addition to the boats being different because of the effects of income and wealth, as you talked about, Clint, outcomes are very different, predictably so, for people of color. 
We don't have a lot of data on race in the coronavirus, but the early data we have points to continued disproportionately negative outcomes for folks of color. Democratic lawmakers and journalists of color have been demanding that states and localities and the federal government begin to track coronavirus contraction and deaths by race, in addition to all of the other factors that are already being measured. I join them in demanding that this essential data be tracked, released, and that elected leaders are held accountable to that data, just like they are the rest of the data. Still, in the early data that we have, we are finding an incredibly disturbing pattern. In Michigan, 14% of state residents are Black, but Black Michiganders accounted for 35% of contractions and 40% of COVID-19 deaths. Louisiana doesn't track by race, but 40% of the deaths across the entire state are just from Orleans Parish, which is majority Black. Illinois and North Carolina are also tracking by race, and they too are displaying disproportionately high numbers of African-American infections and deaths. One might look at this data and presume that this isn't an issue of race, that it's an issue of population density, that the hotspots in these states are dense urban areas like Detroit and New Orleans and Chicago, where people live in close quarters and which are often home to a large population of Black and Brown residents. But y'all, if you have been listening to this podcast for long enough, you already know Black and brown people being crowded into urban areas was not accidental, and it is not circumstantial. The fact that a density like Detroit is majority black is tied directly to the legacy of redlining, to the legacies of sundown towns and restricted covenants, to the systematic denial of the financial benefit to black, brown, and indigenous communities that then went and helped to build the white middle class. What is more is that We had the health disparity data to predict that this would absolutely ravage the Black community in particular if we had cared to do anything about it. As early as March 10th, National Geographic published numbers from the Chinese CDC on which underlying conditions most increase one's chance of death with COVID-19. What are those conditions? In order of risk from riskiest to least, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, chronic respiratory disease, hypertension, and cancer. You all, this list of underlying conditions is essentially a veritable list of diseases Black people have higher risk of contracting, higher incidences of, and higher death rates from. Black people are at higher risk of developing and dying from cardiovascular disease. Diabetes is 60% more common among Black people, and we have three times the rate of asthma in our community as compared to the white community. We are at a higher risk for hypertension, and Black Americans have the highest death rate from cancer. We could have created tailored supports for Black Americans, Indigenous folks, Latinx folks, people who are disabled, and people who don't have health care ahead of time if we had cared to, because the disproportionate risk to all of them is something that we already knew. Coronavirus is the storm, but all our boats are different. And COVID-19 is just as much about racial health disparities as it is about inequitable housing, environmental justice, and economic justice. This doesn't mean that we help some people and not others, not at all. It simply means that we deserve specific and tailored approaches to this pandemic that meet the needs of our diverse country. Urban cores like Detroit and New Orleans will need something different than rural spaces like Springfield, Missouri, and they'll need something different than indigenous folks who live on and off of reservations. 
This isn't a one-size-fits-all virus, so our solutions can't be either. So, you know, I think there are so many layers to explain the outcomes that we're seeing. And, you know, Brittany, you mentioned the legacy of structural racism, the legacy of housing segregation and redlining and healthcare disparities as contributing to this. You know, when you see the the numbers across the country, one of the things that's clear is that the rates of coronavirus cases seem to be accelerating in the South in particular. You know, they sort of started off along the coasts and in some of the largest cities. Um, now they are accelerating within other cities beyond sort of New York and LA and San Francisco, now in Detroit, New Orleans, now also in, in other places across the South. And, you know, as this continues to move throughout the South, it's important to remember about 54% of the Black population in the entire country lives in the South. And almost every single state in the South is being represented by Republican governors, many of whom have completely abdicated their duty to protect their citizens, in particular to protect Black folks from the risk that this virus poses, especially to Black communities, given all of those inequities, given that increased vulnerability. And this is something that is incredibly worrisome. It's something that we're already seeing in the data that we have. And again, we don't even have data beyond a small number of jurisdictions uh, and states. Uh, And so it's all the more important that we're collecting the data right now um, so that we can even begin to track and see where this coronavirus spread is most acute within communities, which communities most acute within, and which communities need the largest and particularly tailored responses to deal with that. It's important to note that Congresswoman Presley, uh, as well as Senator Warren, jointly released a letter urging HHS to begin tracking and to begin urging local and state agencies to begin tracking coronavirus cases by race so that we just have better data on this across the country. That's sort of the first step. But again, this is something that is continuing to get worse as it spreads throughout the South in particular and within cities, even within New York City, which has had the most cases so far, we're seeing that those cases break down along class and racial lines as well. I remember in the early sort of days and even months in this crisis, there was just sort of this idea and this myth that, you know, Black people couldn't get coronavirus or weren't at risk. And now I think it's not only clear with the data, but it's it's clear given all that we know about how any issue in this country breaks down in terms of who's disproportionately affected, um, that Black people are on the front lines of this crisis, are getting hit in many cases the most. Other populations as as well, like uh, Native American populations, are also getting hit disproportionately as well. And we just need as a nation to not only recognize that, not only track that, but to develop responses that are at the scale of the problem, that are tailored to this problem, and that are not excluding folks from relief. Um, You know, a lot of folks may not get relief and benefits and this $1,200 check that was in this $2 trillion stimulus package if they didn't, for example, file taxes in 2018 or 2019, which affects a lot of low-income folks uh, who are disproportionately Black who may not actually get any relief because the distribution of benefits uh, was not designed in a way that was tailored to reach the folks with the highest need. So I'm on the IRS's website looking into this question about like who has to file like a new tax return if their information isn't already on file with the IRS to get that $1,200. So they did make a change so that Social Security beneficiaries who are not typically required to file tax returns now don't need to file anything new to receive a payment. But for low-income folks and veterans and a number of other groups, uh, it literally says on the site, however, some people who typically do not file returns will need to submit a simple tax return to receive the economic impact payment. When more specific details become available, we will update this page. 
So literally, they're just like, yeah, you're going to have to file something, but we can't tell you what to file or when to file it. So you just have to wait and see, and hopefully you'll get the $1,200 at some point and come back to the website soon. And this, again, just risks exacerbating this problem further, and we have to pay attention to that so we can prevent it. So this makes me think about a whole lot of things. When I think about like who is an essential employee, it's like in New York City, uh, doormen are considered essential employees, which if that is not like a just metaphor for the disparity between wealthy people and people who are not wealthy, then like, you know, people can't open their own doors or like figure out how to manage that process in a pandemic. Like what can they figure out? But it also is a reminder and that people were essential way before the crisis, that people were essential when we said that they deserved at least a $15 minimum wage. People were essential when we said that, you know, everybody should have the right to health care. People were essential when we said that homelessness is something that uh, doesn't have to exist. People were essential when we said that poverty was not a choice that people made, but it was a set of conditions that people lived in that often is not of their choosing and rarely is of their choosing. People were essential uh, when this country was founded, that without a set of people who literally make the country go, the plumbers, the welders, the teachers, the like without a set of people. And in this moment, the essential employees are the people making sure that you have food, making sure that you have mail, making sure that you have the toilet paper you're hoarding, making sure that you have the gas you put in your car. It's a reminder that like the language of essential has always been there as we fought for these rights that people deserved from the beginning. Now, when I think about, Brittany, your piece of news about the data, it is interesting that I was talking to somebody in New Orleans, actually, Clint's hometown, about why don't we have good demographic data on, you said that they didn't release it. Part of it is that people don't have it. And I didn't even realize that most of the medical information in hospitals is actually built for billing. It's not even built for reporting demographic data like this. So you find an incredible lag in the data because the system wasn't built to give this sort of information, which is a shame. The other thing is that Almost all the experts believe that we are severely undercounting the death rate, that there's a story in the New York Times about a coroner in Indiana who wanted to know if the virus had killed a man in early March, but the health department denied her test. There were people in New York City that paramedics said that they died at home and they were never tested, even if they showed the signs of the infection. And in Virginia, there was a story of a funeral director who prepared the remains of three people that health workers cautioned her had tested positive for the coronavirus. But the reality is that only one of the three had the virus noted on the death certificate. So it's sort of a shocking thing that the numbers are just not as real as they could be while lives are at stake. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, 
and it literally is restaurant quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, And we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So my news is about Florida, uh, a state which has had a number of problems linked to the incompetence of their political leadership, in particular, uh, their Republican governor, DeSantis. Now, this is something that is particularly close to me because my family lives in Florida. I grew up in Florida. And I remember, so just to tell a story to preface this, I remember a year ago in working with somebody who was filing for unemployment benefits trying to figure out like how to navigate the system of accessing unemployment benefits way before you know this crisis began. Um, and what was clear in using the site is in Florida to apply for unemployment benefits, you have to fill out this huge form. There's many pages to it. It takes about two hours to fill it out. In the process of filling it out, there's all kind of language that they use to sort of dissuade you from actually completing the form, uh, language that specifies all of these crimes and felonies if you report anything that is inaccurate or wrong. And just putting in all kinds of information takes you forever to fill it out. Once you submit it, the site just straight up crashed, right? It didn't submit the data. It took you back to the start after spending two hours to fill this out. 
then tried to fill it out again, filled out all the information, and it crashed again two hours later. Now, I thought that this was suspicious. In knowing how who's sort of leading the build of systems like this, it struck me as perhaps not coincidental that this site was so difficult to actually navigate to get access to benefits that you're entitled to uh, if you're unemployed. But it turns out that those suspicions were confirmed this week as reporting in Politico found that as more and more people are filing for unemployment benefits, it's now in the midst of this crisis, the state of Florida and its Republican leadership have been exposed as uh, intentionally designing their unemployment portal online to be difficult, if not impossible, to navigate. So this is a quote directly from one of Governor DeSantis's advisors describing the site. He says, it was not about saving money. It was about making it harder for people to get benefits or keep benefits so that the unemployment numbers were low to give the governor something to brag about. Now, importantly, this site was built for $78 million under Governor Scott, who is now a senator, a U.S. senator, and it has continued to be maintained by Governor DeSantis now. And what they discovered was, you know, quite simply that this was a form of using technology and using this website as a way to actually make sure that people were not able to apply for and receive the benefits that they were eligible for in order to prevent the state from actually helping folks, a large number of folks who actually needed help in that time and that this need has actually grown exponentially as more and more people in Florida have become unemployed in the midst of this crisis. And it's become a huge issue in Florida right now because many folks who are now Republican voters are trying to submit jobless claims to the site, being denied. And finally, Republican leadership is feeling the pressure from their own constituents to do something about this website. So it's a total mess in Florida right now. They're allegedly building a mobile app now to actually handle new applications for unemployment assistance. It hasn't been built yet. In the meantime, they're saying that people should just fill out paper applications, um, which, as you can imagine, is going to be a huge hurdle to actually process, uh, let alone to actually submit for folks, uh, but then to process by the state and to get folks the benefits that they're entitled to. I think this is another example of how states, uh, in particular Republican-controlled states, are doing things sort of behind the scenes that you wouldn't think of that aren't necessarily policy, but are things as simple as how do they design the website that you actually use to receive benefits in the first place in ways that can actually reduce uh, access for large populations and populations with the highest need. I imagine this may not be the only case in which this is happening in Florida. Just to give you an example, even the voter registration site in Florida uh, in the 2018 midterms routinely crashed and was very difficult for folks to navigate. And so, you know, again, I think this may be the start of something much bigger, um, but it is a microcosm in ways in which we're seeing Republicans building systems that are exclusionary and how that is actually impacting folks right now. You know, we often repeat this idea that systems are not broken. They are working exactly as they were designed. But often we are referring to an amorphous design. We are referring to a series of historical choices throughout various eras from different administrations and under the watchful eye of different leaders that these systems have been built to exist as they do today. It is rare that we have this level of clear information while a system is being unjust as to just how unjustly it was intentionally designed. And here we have one of those very tangible examples. I will remind us all that in the midst of this, we are responsible to continue 
to analyze and look at and hold accountable our elected leaders and how well they are or are not protecting us and our communities in these times. These are the times that we have elected them for. Yes, we have elected them to make sure that our schools are good. Yes, we have elected them to make sure that our courts are just. Yes, we have elected them to make sure that we can drive over streets and that we can uh, leverage access to certain community goods. But we have also elected them to make sure that people are safe, cared for, and can not only survive, but thrive in a time of crisis. And how well they do or do not do that is always up for us to look at as citizens, and it should always inform how we vote. Of course, voting right now is in flux in so many ways. There are folks who have had primaries canceled indefinitely or moved to dates that we don't know whether or not we'll be able to come outside to engage in. We have seen the Democratic National Convention push their date back by over a month. We have probably ourselves been in lots of conversations about whether or not we believe Trump is going to try to suspend the general election in November or whether or not we're going to have an election at all until next year. Look, a lot of these things are conjecture and a lot of these things are left up to people who are on commissions and in elected positions to be able to figure these things out. But one thing I know for sure is that we should should not ever allow our government to make us falsely choose between our safety and our democracy, that there is plenty of time between now and November for Congress to put more money into giving states the resources that they need to swiftly change their systems to ensure that folks who are designing systems to count folks out intentionally no longer have the benefit of their seat. I think it's important to to take a second. Part of what Sam alluded to was this idea of how difficult and complex it was to apply for unemployment in Florida and how it was intentionally designed to be so. That is kind of a microcosm of a much larger phenomenon that social science has outlined in terms of the complexity of applying for assistance, whether it be food or medical or unemployment, what have you. And I think it's important to to consider like, all right, you know, if somebody wants to apply for food stamps, typically, and there's some variation state to state, but it is not atypical for a person to have to take the day off of work. And because there are often many working people who are on SNAP because they make so little that they still qualify for SNAP, but they have to take a day off work. They lose that income. They go to the the office and they get their uh, application. These applications can be like 20 pages long. They need documents like their pay stubs, proof of residence, proof of expenses, of rent, of childcare. And unless they know these requirements from the beginning, which folks don't always, they probably have to go back home and then to their employer or their landlord to obtain these documents, which they then have to mail or bring back to the office on another day. And the first visit probably lasts a few hours because these offices are, are typically pretty busy. But oftentimes they might be really busy. You know, if you've ever been to the DMV, it's it's like that to some extent. You might spend, you know, many, many hours or the whole day, whole morning, whole afternoon there. And then also, like, even after you get your application and you have to wait 30 to 45 days, oftentimes, to hear back about food assistance, to hear back about Medicaid. And 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 I just bring this stuff up because this is not, like, an easy, streamlined process. I th- there's not an app for this to the extent that I'm aware. Like, a lot of these places you have to go in person, fill it out. And the frustration that many people feel going to the DMV and the inconvenience of like, oh, I didn't bring two proofs of residence instead of one. And so now I waited in line for five hours and I have to come back another day. Imagine that 
but the stakes being so much higher, right? This isn't like you need a new driver's license or you need a new license plate for your car. This is like, are my kids going to eat? Am I going to have health insurance? Am I going to have the unemployment benefits I need to like provide for my family? So I think sometimes there's this myth that like, oh, if you just got to go on a website and fill it out, but it's really important to recognize that it's, that it's not. And for the folks who are in these circumstances already, we talk all the time about how like poverty just makes every other facet of your life more difficult. Like if you have to take work off or if you have to ask for things from a landlord that you might have a not great relationship with, I mean, it's it's just a very difficult set of circumstances to collect all of the things that you need and take time out of your day to go to this place and then to have to wait, you know, possibly another month and a half to even hear back about whether you filled it out correctly and if you're going to get those benefits. It's a lot. It's a lot. This does remind me, too, that the systems will be here after the pandemic ends and that this moment is stretching them to their capacity, is highlighting parts of the systems that don't work for people. There's a dry cleaner by me who I go to often. They don't really dry clean my clothes. I don't need them dry clean, but like press and steamed or like getting uh, some stains out of stuff. And I went to him recently because, you know, they're still open because it's considered essential. And we were talking about like how to apply for a small business loan. So I was like, you know what? Cool. I will come back to you on this day. And I went the other day and I will go over it all. So I print everything out. I like have the to do's about what I'm going to do, what I need from him. And it was this incredible moment we were together when it was like, wow, it was a reminder that the system is designed for people who know how to navigate the system that like, the number of links and calls and emails and get this document from your bank because they have the right version of the document. Don't just download. Like just the sheer energy to get ready to do something was so fascinating and wild to me for people who like aren't on Twitter all day, aren't on Facebook. Like he doesn't have a computer at the shop. He uses his phone primarily for email. He has an AOL email address. It's his like primary one. Like there's not really a business one yet. Great guy, like has done a lot for the community. Heart is in the right place, like deserves access to everything. But the system isn't designed to meet him and his needs. And it was this reminder of like, wow. Uh, That takes me though to my news that is about the fears in the disability community over the way that the coronavirus might spread out. And remember, I was talking to a public health expert the other day. Remember that there's a lag in hospitalizations from when people first uh, get it. Then there's a lag in uh, death data that we get. So like all the data we're getting right now, the numbers you see are lagged like one to two weeks. So there's uh, still a notion that we have not hit the plateau yet of deaths. So this is like the waves are coming. And soon, as you've heard on TV, when the ventilators go out of stock and when there aren't enough ICU beds, there will have to be decisions about who to care for. And what the disability community is worried about is that in many states, there are best practice protocols about rationing out equipment, life-saving equipment for people and rationing out beds. So because of pressure, HHS actually uh, issued a directive outlawing this across states, banning this across states. But still, the states haven't caught up yet with actually changing the requirements. So in Alabama, Kansas, Tennessee, and Washington state, it allows doctors to withhold care from people with disabilities, which is in violation of federal law. But it's not clear that those policies have changed yet. In Alabama's emergency operations plan, it says, quote, that persons with severe mental retardation are in the group of people people who, quote, may be poor candidates for life-saving care if there's a shortage of supplies. In Kansas and Tennessee, the emergency guidelines say that people with, quote, advanced neuromuscular disease uh, might be excluded from critical care altogether. And then in Washington, guidelines include considerations about a patient's, quote, baseline functional status, which is a host of factors like physical ability and cognition, 
But what groups are concerned about, which makes a lot of sense, is that this just is a pathway to discrimination, that this just opens up a way to allow people to discriminate on other people in ways that we've seen be disproportionate about race, about gender, and about ability. So I wanted to bring that here. I'm mad at everybody, and that's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams. Now celebrating 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams is the originator of everyone's favorite Lux Home Blanket. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort, as its ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are each made with premium materials. Get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code PODCAST15. And now my conversation with David Cole, who leads all the legal work over the ACLU. David, thanks so much for joining us again on Pod Save the People. It's so good to be with you. Now, had you on a long time ago when the world was admittedly sort of wild, we were talking about what uh, the law looks like in this new administration and with immigration and all these other things. None of us could have predicted that there would be a pandemic, which seems like it changes the game in a completely different direction. What is the ACLU doing? Are the courts even open? Like, can you just give us a sort of sense of what a pandemic moment means in terms of an organization like the ACLU? Yeah, well, it's absolutely unprecedented for for us, just like for everybody else. And it has caused us to rethink the way we're doing the work that we do, because everybody is working remotely, including courts. And so it just it, 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 it slows a lot of things down. But justice, as you know, moves slowly in any event. Uh, so that's a, a relative uh, thing. Uh, but what is not slowed down is the need for courts and government officials to respond to real threats to vulnerable people. Uh, And so what we have uh, done at the ACLU is we have focused on the most vulnerable and sought to ensure that they don't get left behind in the COVID uh, response. And that's particularly the people in um, jails, in prisons, and in immigration detention centers, uh, you know, the fact that you're in jail awaiting trial for some minor offense should not be a potential death sentence. And so we are seeking to get people out of as many 
uh, detention centers as possible because they are obviously going to become petri dishes for infection. But we're also fighting to make sure that democracy continues, uh, that we can have an election in November, that it will make sense that people have the opportunity to vote in primaries uh, and the like. Uh, and then we're concerned about things like uh, exploitation of this crisis to go after issues that people go after anyway, but they just see this as an excuse. And so uh, we are fighting to keep abortion clinics open in states that have used this coronavirus crisis as a justification to try to shut down abortion clinics. And then finally, just top line, we have a lot of concern about how the rationing of medical treatment is going to go down when it, when it has to be rationed. And that's, we're getting to that point, I think, very soon. Uh, and there's a real concern that the rationing will be discriminatory, uh, that it will deny necessary treatment to the most vulnerable, to the disadvantaged, uh, to people of color, to the disabled. Uh, and so we're uh, engaging on that front as well. So there are many fronts on which, you know, we have to be engaged and courts, you know, are staying open for those kinds of um, emergency kinds of uh, of issues. Can you just explain to me what it means that the courts are open right now? Like, does that mean, I don't even, I guess I'm like just trying to understand it. Are the are the judges having like conference calls? Is if you filed a brief like myself, you know, and you, because you guys are representing me uh, towards the Supreme Court, are they still reviewing those? Or are they like on hold? Like, what does it mean? So, you know, a lot can continue remotely, uh, just as, you know, there are plenty of areas of work where the work can continue remotely. And the courts is one of them. I mean, take the Supreme Court. Essentially, the way the Supreme Court operates is you file briefs to the court arguing your case. You try to get them to take your case. If they take your case, they hold an argument, uh, an hour-long argument, and then they write a decision. Everything can be done electronically. The filing of briefs can be done electronically. The justices can meet and confer about how to decide the case uh, by conference call. They can hold arguments by conference call. Um, the courts across the country are not stopping holding oral arguments in cases that are ongoing. They're just shifting to remote arguments where the, the lawyers and the judges get on the phone or get on a Zoom and they proceed as if they were in court, except the lawyers, they can be there in jogging pants as long as they wear you know, a tie up top. But that, that continues. What doesn't continue are anything that requires presence in the courtroom, uh, a jury trial. You can't have a jury trial. You have a right to a jury in a criminal case, but how could you have a jury trial? People have to stay six feet apart from each other. You don't want to bring a whole bunch of people into a room where they can't possibly stay six feet apart. And so jury trials have been delayed across uh, the country. But emergency hearings, uh, hearings, uh, you know, for example, we have gone into many courts across the country to get people out of immigration detention facilities and focusing in particular on the, those who are most vulnerable to the virus, the elderly, people with respiratory diseases, people with uh, immune deficiency, etc. And we are filing cases in court and we are winning and judges are issuing decisions saying that you have to get this person out of that detention center uh, because of the threat that the coronavirus 
presents. We've taken emergency petitions to Supreme Courts, state Supreme Courts in Pennsylvania, in Massachusetts, in New Jersey, uh, seeking to have those courts order their prison and jail officials to, you know, deal with the coronavirus crisis by identifying the people who can be released responsibly and releasing them, by ensuring that the people who can't be released are held in safe CDC-compliant procedures and the like. And so, for example, just Monday, we filed an emergency petition with the Pennsylvania Supreme Court asking it to use its extraordinary powers of supervising the justice system. And we asked them, you need to order the government of Pennsylvania, the, you know, the people in charge of the prisons and jails in Pennsylvania, to deal with this problem. We filed that Monday morning. The court ordered the government to respond by noon on Wednesday. So they're open. They're hearing these cases. They hear them electronically and by conference call and Zoom, but, uh, but justice continues. Or I should say the struggle for justice continues. <laughs> we'll see whether we get justice, but we're struggling. You mentioned briefly some issues around sort of incarceration and arrest. Can you talk about what's happening with ICE and and the work that you all are doing to get ICE to release people from custody? Like, why is this still a thing? You know, it's still a thing because we have a president who is uh, xenophobic, who plays on xenophobia to play to his base, who sees that as his way to maintaining his support. And so the tough on immigration message has been consistent from this administration from day one. And we've been fighting back from day one, from the Muslim ban to family separation, to the efforts to stop people from being able to apply for asylum. And we've been, you know, suing Trump at every stage. But now we are focusing on the folks in detention. And there are 37,000 people in immigration detention. And you have to realize When you're in immigration detention, it's not because you're dangerous to the community. It's not because you have committed some violent crime and and we're, you know, holding you accountable and we're keeping the community safe. It's basically to ensure that you are around when we have your deportation hearing, that you don't disappear into the, you know, into the country and we can't find you, that we can, in fact, remove you if you are deemed deportable after all of your process. That's the only purpose of immigration detention. That, you know, may make sense with respect to particular individuals who actually have been shown to pose a risk of flight while they're awaiting their hearings uh, in ordinary times. When you know that the coronavirus is going to get into these facilities is going to spread like wildfire in these facilities, is going to kill many people in these facilities, it's a very different calculus. And so, you know, we think they should be releasing people from immigration detention absent some extraordinary showing that someone actually does pose a danger to the community. They should be releasing these folks. ICE, you will not be surprised to hear, is not uh, listening to our every word. In fact, there was an immigration official who issued a statement about the importance of getting people out who um, don't need to be detained. And, and the, uh, the head of DHS, you know, came back and, and sort of backtracked uh, later that same day and said, no, 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 we are tough on immigrants. We're going to be tough on immigrants. So they're not doing it voluntarily. So we're going into courts across the country and we're, you know, identifying 
particular vulnerable populations, and we're saying you've got to get these people out. Just this uh, past week, we got a, a great decision from a federal judge in Pennsylvania who said, you have to release these 10 people. Uh, it would be unconscionable and barbaric to keep them in detention, given the threat that they face. And they're out now. And we've gotten people released in many detention centers around the country through filing these kinds of emergency petitions. You know, one of the things I want to talk to you about is that uh, Attorney General Barr seemingly has said that there's a plan for releasing people from prisons to avoid exposing them from the coronavirus. Is that true? Is that a real thing? Or is this just like a PR play? You know, I think that remains to be seen. Uh, I haven't seen a lot from Attorney General Barr that makes me think that we should trust him. (laughs) Quite the opposite. Uh, On the other hand, you know, I do think that this is an issue on which we all ought to be united, meaning Republicans and Democrats, guards and prisoners, people on the outside and people on the inside, because this is an infectious disease. If you get an outbreak of infectious disease in a prison or a jail, it's not going to stay in that prison or jail. It will affect many people in that prison or jail because of the inability to keep people in social distancing and the like, but it will spread out, right? You have guards in the jail. They live in the community. It will infect that community. And so it's in everybody's interest to reduce conditions that will lead to hotspots. And prisons and jails are conditions that will lead to hotspots. And so in a number of places, we've seen the unions that represent the guards on our side calling for release of as many detainees and prisoners as we can responsibly release. And you've seen many sheriffs and prosecutors calling for these releases and, in fact, releasing people without a lawsuit being filed, just in response to advocacy. So, you know, it is an instance where we ought to all be in this together. The coronavirus actually puts us all in the same ship. If any of us get infected, we then become a vector that puts many other people at risk. And so we've got to do everything we can to reduce infection. And that means getting as many people out of jails and prisons who we don't need to have in jails and prisons, people who are awaiting trial because they couldn't make their cash bail or people who are near the end of their sentences. They've served the bulk of their time. I mean, you know, come on, get them out, get them into a place where they can actually practice social distancing and self-isolation. I'm sure that there are people in the Justice Department, people in the Bureau of Prisons who are concerned about that. Barr might be genuinely concerned about that. I think on the other side, you know, you have Barr's impetus to be tough on crime, to be kind of reactionary, to play to the base. And so he won't go anywhere near as far as he needs to go unless we, the people, are pressing and pushing and making our voices heard uh, about the absolute critical necessity to get people out of detention and out of harm's way before they get infected and and potentially die. I read a report about Barr's plan that said it's going to use one of those risk assessments that actually hasn't been used before, but an expert thinks that only 7% of Black men will be uh, released under that plan, that, that we'll see racially disparate outcomes, which is, you know, par for the course. One of the things I also want to ask you about is that I've read that the um, Department of Justice is filing claims against people for intentionally spreading the coronavirus. 
What's the ACLU's take on something like that? I haven't seen uh, those cases, so they're disturbing. I, you know, it depends on the circumstances, I suppose, but I, so I can't make a general statement, and I'm not aware of the specifics of, uh, of any such cases. You talked about the lawsuits that the ACLU's filing about uh, the rollbacks on reproductive rights that we're seeing across the country. Do you think that we'll be successful in these? Do you think that there's a legitimate public safety concern that women shouldn't be sort of uh, convening in clinics or this is unsafe for doctors? Like, I've seen people who are pro-choice be like, well, it makes sort of sense that you close the clinic down because it's a public health risk for everybody. Like, what? how do we, how do we talk about that? We have filed... Uh, suit in Ohio and Alabama uh, challenging uh, these orders, and we got temporary restraining orders, essentially injunctions, uh, barring the government from closing down the facilities. Uh, Planned Parenthood filed a similar case in Texas. They also got an injunction. We're about to file another case in West Virginia. So here's the thing. Yes, you know, it makes sense to close down certain sorts of elective medical treatment that is not, um, you know, essential in this time. So dentist offices should not be open for cleaning, right? Plastic surgery should not be going forward at this time. But it's very different when you're talking about abortion, which is, you know, an essential medical treatment. If a woman, you know, is unable to get an abortion, then number one, uh, she's going to need all the medical care that's associated with bringing a child to term, which is actually will require more doctor visits, more convening, more use of protective gear and the like than an abortion. So it's irrational to say that, you know, what we're trying to do is reduce the burden on the medical system by barring abortions if what what it means is requiring women to bear uh, children that they don't want uh, because it's actually more burdensome on the medical system to bear children than it is to get an abortion. Uh, There's also the concern that what happens realistically if, you know, Alabama bans abortion or closes their abortion clinics and there's a woman in Alabama who desperately wants an abortion and let's say she's at a you know stage where if she waits a month, it'll be illegal to have an abortion because you know, she'll be too far along. Do you think she's just going to sit at home and have the baby? Or is she going to do everything she can to travel to another state to have the abortion there? Uh, and it's not, you know, it's not, not all states are going to ban this. It's, it's only particular states. So what you're actually doing is incentivizing people to travel, which is something we don't want people to be doing, to be going to other places where they might have to stay overnight, um, have more uh, contact with more people, greater chance of becoming a vector for more communities by requiring them to travel. So the argument that we're making and that we've been winning on in the courts thus far is abortion is a constitutional right. It is dangerous to put it off. And in many instances, putting off will mean that the woman actually cannot legally obtain an abortion at all. Uh, It is a safe procedure. Many women get abortions through taking two pills, medication abortion, it's called. It doesn't require surgery of any kind or even being in a surgical facility. And yet 
in in some states, Texas in particular, uh, they have said we're going to bar medication abortions as well. So I think what we're seeing here is not a bona fide effort to preserve medical resources for fighting COVID. There are many instances in which it makes perfect sense to do that. But what you're seeing here is rather people who are against abortion on ideological grounds exploiting this crisis to try to get something that they could not otherwise get, which is barring women from obtaining the essential medical service and constitutionally protected medical service of abortion. One of the things I want to talk to you about is something I haven't heard talked about in many places, but what can we do to make sure that people with disabilities have what they need, that their medical needs aren't ignored during this time or used against them or used like as an excuse to, to not support them? Is there anything we can do? Absolutely. I mean, so first of all, I mean, more broadly than the disabled, I think going back to something I said earlier, that we're all in the same boat here. Never before, I think, has it been more obvious that we as a country, as a nation, need to be ensuring that everybody at every level of our society has what they need to deal with this threat. If we disregard the poorest among us, the homeless, the people who are out of uh, work, the people who uh, live in you know very tight quarters, if we disregard them and don't provide them with the services that are essential, they will then become vectors for spreading the disease still further to the community at large. We only succeed if we protect everybody. And so it is absolutely critical that we do everything we can to protect those who are out of work, to protect those who don't have insurance, to ensure that people have access to the medical care that they need to deal with this crisis. With respect to the disabled in particular, you know, the principal concern here is we are very likely to be at a point of medical rationing very soon. Uh, We saw it in Italy where there were so many people coming into the hospitals in critical condition, needing ventilators, and there weren't enough ventilators. And doctors were put in the horrific position of having to choose, do I give the ventilator to this patient or this patient or that patient? And I think we're going to get there. Andrew Cuomo says we're not there yet in New York, but I, you know, I think it's very likely we're going to get there. And so I think you have to face that hard question, just like on the battlefield, what are the appropriate guidelines and criteria for triage? Here's what's appropriate. Giving a ventilator to this person is very unlikely to succeed, that this person is going to die whether or not we give them a ventilator. Then then they're not necessarily qualified for the treatment. If the treatment is futile, you don't put them on the ventilator. Here's what's not appropriate. This person has a disability, and here's another person who doesn't have a disability. Let's give the ventilator to the able-bodied person rather than the disabled person, simply because one is able-bodied and the other is disabled. That's just pure out-and-out discrimination on the basis of disability. Or you might say something different. You might say, well, we're going to give it to the person whose quality of life is better. You know, if we can only save one person, let's save the person who has a better quality of life. And an able-bodied person has a better quality of life than a disabled person. Again, that cannot be acceptable. How do we know 
when you actually look at studies that have talked to, you know, disabled people about their quality of life, their quality of life is just as good as any other person's quality of life. Some people may presume that a disabled person has a lesser quality of life, or you might even think yourself, if I were disabled, I would have a lower quality of life. That's false. Uh, in fact, you know, people who are disabled have, you know, just as positive and happy lives as, as the rest of us or just as miserable uh, lives as the rest of us. The, the, the fact of a disability does not uh, enter into one's enjoyment of life in a significant way and should not be a factor for deciding who gets treatment and who doesn't get treatment. And there's a real concern that it will be. Um, and we've uh, we've seen already a number of states have have sort of dusted off old triage guidelines. Alabama, if an individual has mental retardation or mild dementia, he is not a good candidate for a ventilator. That's just wrong. We all know people who are mentally disabled, including people who have mild dementia, who have, uh, you know, who nonetheless live uh, valuable, important, productive lives. Uh, and, and we shouldn't be making assessments to say, we're going to write you off because you're disabled. I want to ask you the questions that we ask everybody. This question of like, what do you say to people who are losing hope? People who are, are looking right now and they're like, wow, I thought I did everything I was supposed to do. And I feel like there's no, uh, no end in sight. What do you say to them in this moment? You know, I say I totally get, I hear it. This is an incredibly challenging time that we are living in. It is hard for every one of us. Um, but, you know, we, that is humanity, have been through this before. You know, the ACLU was founded in 1919, one year after the Spanish flu, which was a pandemic of these proportions that, you know, killed many, 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 many people. And we recovered from that pandemic. Uh, you know, we've lived through world wars uh, and we've recovered. So we will recover. We will see this through. You know, you, you, you look at China and they're already, you know, on the sort of backside of it. You look at places like Italy and which are, have been disastrous, but the numbers of people with new cases are, are dropping dramatically. So we will see some, you know, drop off in this at some point. Uh, it's going to be brutal before it gets better, but it will get better. Uh, and in the meantime, I think it's important that we all try to be as good as we can be in terms of being good to our fellow citizens, caring for the most vulnerable, but also insisting that we live up to the principles that this country stands for at its best and doesn't always live up to, but it, we can be sure that it won't live up to them unless we are engaging, we are supporting and working with organizations that are uh, fighting to try to, one, confront this disease, but secondly, confront this disease in a way that does justice to everybody in this country, that recognizes our principles uh, as we fight the fight. Is there a piece of advice that you've gotten uh, over the years or recently that, that has stuck with you? It's a version of what Brian Stevenson, the great death penalty lawyer, uh, says. He says, you know, the enemy of justice is not injustice, it's hopelessness. And I think, you know, what he means by that is that, you know, at the end of the day, we don't really have a choice. If we want to live in a society in which people are treated justly, we have to engage 
And we have to believe that if we engage, it can make a difference. And I think it does. So there's a quote that uh, Cornell West and Roberto Unger uh, have in a book uh, they wrote maybe 20 years ago called The Future of American Progressivism. And they say something like, hope is more the consequence of action than its cause. Just as the perspective of the spectator favors fatalism, so the action of the agent produces hope. And to me, that is a critical insight. It's not that you're, you're born with a hope DNA or you're born with a pessimism DNA. It's not that you act because you have hope. The causal thing goes the other direction. If you act, you produce hope. So my message to people is you have two choices. You can sit back, be a spectator, be fatalistic, or you can take action and produce hope. You know, that really means we only have one choice, which is to take action. There we go. Thanks so much for joining us on Potsy of the People. We can't wait to have you back. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.